yesterday <laughs> oh yeah i just wanted to i just wanted to pop by to say hello but I'm yeah. <laughs> it's, it's totally what happened oh my god oh my god nothing i just saw it over there and it's like it's like a big fat like it's like a big fat groundhog i mean it must be like a foot and a half long you know and like i don't know eight Damn. inches tall or something like it's huge, and it just, like, it just ate some stuff on, like, all fours, and then it did the thing where it set up on its back legs, and it just kind of looked at, at, like, my dog in the yard for a while, and it was, like, super cute. Anyway, that's it. Hey, we're, like, super lucky. We're going to get to talk to um, the poet and publisher, Megan Burns, who's on the line with us, but just to get her kind of introduced to anyone who maybe wouldn't know her already. Uh, Megan Burns runs the Trembling Pillow Press. She's the publisher there. Um, you should definitely look that up. Her books are gorgeous. She is also a poet who publishes uh, many of her books on Lavender Inc. So that's out there also. She's one of the co-founders of the New Orleans Poetry Festival that happens every year. Among so many other things, um, Megan is just um, very much of an artist at life. And, uh, wait, hello. Megan, Megan is definitely a New Orleans local celebrity. I have a wonderful topic to talk to uh, Megan Burns about today also, So, um, which is... The CIA's involvement in poetry and in literature in the United States. So I know, Kelly, you and I have talked about various types of propaganda, uh, both on Secret Antenna and previously on QTV together. So we've discussed, um, we've discussed like Hollywood's, the very first censor board that started in the, in the, in the early 1920s and uh, the man Hayes, he was appointed by Harding, and Hayes said, you know, this thing, this 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 Hollywood thing, this video with the words and all of this, you know, this is a big propaganda tool. We want to have control of that, you know, for morality. So that's something that was understood in the early 20s involving Hollywood. The first blacklist, I know we talked about that, it was called the Doom Book, and that was right, in the yeah. early... Uh, it's so scary. That's the early 20s. And if your name landed in the Doom book, you know, 
you were out, whether you were an actor or you were a scriptwriter or any of those things. So that's happening early on. Um, you know, and then coming up, I think, you know, and then into the 30s, which I know um, that's when we get near this Iowa Writers Workshop that Megan's going to talk about today. But that's when a lot of that G-Man propaganda is happening, where it's like mm-hmm. the federal agent is a superhero. You know, it's like that era also really comes into contact, I think, with what we're going to talk about today. Um, but we know for sure that we see all kinds of playing around um, by, the, by the Central Intelligence Agency and agencies and operations associated with, I think we've talked about Project Mockingbird before. Like there's so many projects um, that want to control what we think and what we read and how we have values uh, about things. And it always tends to be, it's really the leftist. That, that, are, that are taken, that, that the propaganda is against. It's really the leftists. And as, you know, we remind usually when we do these shows, like liberals and neoliberals are not really the left. And at the time when things are happening that we consider liberal now, like civil rights and human rights, when those initial fights are happening, it's not the, it's, it's the leftists that are, that are heading up those fights. Those are the that is the part of the political system that's heading up fights that eventually become every day accepted into a liberal and neoliberal points of view, I guess would be one way to say it. I'll, 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 I'll nutshell it like that, I think. Um, anyway, we're going to be talking about more of that today. So, um, yeah, Megan, why don't you tell us about the Iowa Writers Workshop? Okay. Um, so I'll do like a little background for any listeners that are not aware of the timeline. So the Iowa Writers Workshop is the oldest MFA in the United States. It was created in 1936. It was founded by Wilbur Schramm. Um, and he went on very shortly after he created, it's really interesting, he went on to, in 1941, uh, work for the Office of War Information, which is kind of also what you were talking about as far as that link to Hollywood, the Office of War Information created during World War II really became that propaganda campaign that controlled how Americans were going to view the war, how they were going to think about Japanese internment and the Allies and uh, Uncle Sam and women in the workforce. I mean, they were behind all that propaganda. And the director of the OWI, Elmer Davis, um, very like came out very clearly and like stated like yeah the best way to propagandize uh, people is through entertainment because they don't know they're actually receiving propaganda so it wasn't by accident that anything's you know that entertainment became their focus point because they knew uh, anything that lulls people into thinking they aren't being propagandized that's where we want to focus our attention the person that started the MFA program was already obviously already very into this in order to just get a job at the Office of War Information, <laughs> as soon as it as it as soon as it comes into conception, obviously Wilbur Schramm was already kind of onto this uh, idea and connected with these individuals. Um, and so when he left to go to the Office of War Information, that's when Paul Engel comes on and begins to direct what is the Iowa Writers Workshop at this point. And he's on the directing board from 41 into 65, so for a long time. And he's pulling in a lot of money, and he's creating this solid program that becomes the template basically for all you know, MFA programs moving forward across the country. 
And the Iowa Rise Workshop kind of gets jokingly called the, the training camp for MFA programs because uh, I think within the next you know decade or so, 50 more programs sprung up across the country that were all founded by people coming out of the same program. Uh, this very narrow idea of like what does it mean to get an MFA if, if everyone's going through the same narrow, um, very conservative, very pro-American idea of what is literature, what is writing. Um, and then I just wanted to like name some people. I'm going to name poets since I'm a poet and that's my, my area of <laughs> expertise and look up the fiction writers. There's many famous fiction writers as well. But the poets you would know are like Robert Lowell, uh, Robert Penn Warren, Snodgrass, Berryman, Donald Justice, um, Rita Dove, James Tate, Louise Gluck, Philip Levine, Jory Graham, Charles Wright, Mark Strand. I mean, these are very well-known, yeah. very popular, well-published, well-connected, yeah. and poets win the awards, right? So yeah. not only... Um, not only are they creating kind of a training camp for what do we call literature, um, and they're never using the word propaganda, obviously, to talk about literature, but, but it is. It is a kind of propaganda program. If you are sitting in this uh, writing space and, and you have this thing that they developed called the writing workshop, here's to write a certain way in order to get published by these certain publishing spaces, these publishing houses, um, and in then order to win these certain awards, and you keep seeing these same people, you know, win these awards, it does become a kind of like very insulated propaganda program where if you want to be successful, you follow this template, and then you you're you're a writer, man, you're a poet now, you got it. So. Yeah, let's let's talk about let's stop for a second and talk about tell us about what like an MFA, it's a Master of Fine Arts degree. So what does that get you in the industry, coming from a perspective of somebody who publishes and has been published? I think you and I both have MFAs. Uh, I do have an MFA. My MFA is from the University of Naropa, which is a Buddhist private college um, that was founded by poets. And so it is a little different and a little outside of this Iowa Writers' Workshop template. But when I went to apply to be in an MFA program, I mean, originally, I think I was, I think it was 1999 or 2000 when I finished college, and I was looking to go to graduate school, and Iowa was the number one school. I mean, it still is the mm-hmm. number one. You're following in the lineage. You're in this lineage now of people who win awards, get published. You know, they're able to control the entire environment and really gatekeep the entire environment in this way. So I looked at Iowa. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to popular. I was 22, 23 years old. You know, you want to get published. You want to mm-hmm. win those awards. Um, so, yeah. And, I mean, and there's hundreds of MFA programs all over the country now. I mean, they're just ubiquitous. Every college, you know, has most colleges have an MFA program. Um, I think that what people are... So when I was at this age, um, which would have been 20 years ago at this point, uh, it was kind of understood that the reason you would get an MFA is because you want one of those coveted academic positions that still existed mm-hmm. almost back then. They were starting to dwindle, but they still kind of existed. You could work for a university. You could maybe get tenure at some point um, and be set. And at this point, 20 years later, that I mean, that's all disappeared. Like, we know people with PhDs now who are still adjuncting. Like, it really was um, – kind of a pipe dream to begin with in the way that it was created. But uh-huh. certainly even by the time I applied, I mean, I never went to school to become a professor or a teacher in any way because even going in in the 2000, I understood statistically that that was 
there was not that many jobs for as many people that were coming out of these programs. As far as publishing, still at that time, um, and I'll talk about contemporary changes in publishing, but still at that time, you needed to have that MFA to really get published a lot of places. That, that right. was a benchmark that a lot of places uh-huh. wanted you to have, not just for hiring reasons. Um, certainly at the university level you had to have it, but, um, and sometimes at the high school level even. But certainly to be published, and, and not just publishing individual poems, but if you wanted a book published, it was almost a requirement. It's like you have to have that MFA. As that is wild. That is a gatekeep, not, that is some gatekeeping mm-hmm. nonsense. That is absolute madness. I mean, in regards to poetry, mm-hmm. if you really break it down logically, it's absolutely mad because why, who, I mean, who can really teach you how to be a poet? Like what, you're going somewhere. Seriously. Some mentors and you're paying a bunch of money and then at some point they say, well, okay, now you, you are an official poet. Here's your poet license. It's, it's a really Oh my God, thing. not a poet license. That's wild. <laughs> But, it, but it, you know, it became standard. It became standard in the publishing world. Now, what okay. really changed this was print-on-demand. Print-on-demand changed this uh, drastically in the print world. So once we were able, and also, you know, Internet and social media influenced all of this. So print journals and printing in general was the way it was in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. As soon as the Internet becomes more ubiquitous and social media and online journals become accepted, there was a time where getting published online meant nothing. Like it meant nothing. Mm, you had mm-hmm, to have that. Mm-hmm. You tried to put that you were printed on, you published online. It was laughable. It was like, what? That that means nothing, right? And now, right. You know, fast forward twenty years, and almost everything is online. Almost anyone's CV as a poet is going to be made up probably ninety percent of things that are published online. It's completely accepted now. Um, yeah. And print on demand changed the kind of there's still an incredible amount of gatekeeping in the publishing world as far as large publishing mm-hmm. houses. And when you get into ideas of like who's getting um, any kind of money uh, from their books and, and getting access and, and getting these opportunities to read at big conferences, of course the big publishing houses still control all that. But print-on-demand really shaped and really changed things for the poetry community because more individual and independent small presses became popular. And then it became kind of in almost like a kind of anti-cult fashion, if you consider publishing houses the cult. It was like it was cooler as a poet to get published by small presses, right, to, to go back uh-huh. to that kind of community, you know, accolades versus trying to get this small slice pie of I want Random House or a penguin to publish me. You know, poets realize that's not feasible. And so independent small presses start to bloom. They're able to support themselves because print-on-demand is just a more cost-effective mm-hmm. way to print books. And then you have a lot of online sources that allow people to do this, you know, anywhere in the world without a lot of training. And historically, I think poetry has been a different kind of market than other different kind of writings because it comes from a place of oral tradition and sharing within the community and self-publishing. And these changes happening is giving this agency back to, or just giving it maybe for the first time, um, to the to the poets and to the authors and to the creators, which is allowing for kind of this apple t- cart to be upturned uh, right now once again on what you're talking about with this CIA influx into these programs and what that meant all along the way. Because it seems like even though this has been known for a while and people have spoken about it, um, you know, there's lots of articles that you sent me that we both looked at recently from the last five years, 
But it seems like right now is this real moment where people want to talk about this gatekeeping and what and what went on from because I mean the Iowa's workshop has turned out the writers that you read in school. For example, Harrison Bergeron, which is a Kurt Vonnegut story that I read in the eighth grade. It was in our it was in my eighth grade literature book and that's a short story by Kurt Vonnegut, who is a faculty alumni from the Iowa School also. He was brought in to be on the faculty there. Um, and, and he wrote a story uh, called Harrison Bergeron, which like I said, is, is taught, I, I mean, I think pretty regularly in schools where it was. Read the first paragraph here. The first paragraph, this is Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. And the first paragraph is, the year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law. They were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 2011, or 212th, 213th Amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Okay, that's the first paragraph of the story. God, that is so wild. Because it's like, I don't understand why people frame communism and socialism as like removing people's talents like nobody gets yeah. to be talented nobody gets to be special it's like bro yeah. what what why are, why are you what are you saying that's like just stupid <laughs> it really it's it's this is really bad yeah it's what it's really bad it's exactly what you're saying and this story was written in 1961 and what happens you know after this and see those short sentences, you know, in the way, like, that's kind of this, uh, you know, it's this cynical, playful way that Kurt Vonnegut's very well known for writing. But he is also what, had a capacity for literary writing, which I want to talk about in a second because I think it makes his anti-communism also. I think it plays into that. But in the story of Harrison Bergeron, so what, what happens is there's a couple and their 14-year-old son, Harrison Bergeron, has just been taken by the government. Um, and it's because he's kind of this, like, he's this really strong, good-looking, smart, talented kid. And the government of, you know, whatever country these people are living in, ostensibly the future United States, um, is they, they have something called the Handicapper General, who does these things, like, puts a, if you're really smart, they put an implant in your brain that makes like glass shatter every couple seconds or sirens go off or cats screaming or whatever. So you can't hold thoughts, right? Um, so that's what's happening to the main character in this story, but apparently it wasn't enough to keep Eris and Bergeron down. So the government had to come get that him. And like, it, it's, it's this ridiculous, very short, very short story. Um, but he, so Harrison Bergeron like frees this, 
ballerina who's so talented because what the handicapper general does, if you're really strong and athletic, they put all these sandbags on you so that you can't be stronger or better or faster than anyone else. If you're intelligent, they put that thing in your head. Um, you know, if, like whatever about you, like you said, is special and talented, the government is um, suppressing in these, in these really physical ways. And the characters in this story are in agreement with it. Like there's a couple of times in the story where the mother, whose son has just been taken, says, well, we can't have people being unequal now, can we? It's just really very childish, and it makes a lot it's of like, sense. It's not like Dr. Seuss vibes, honestly. Yeah. Like even yeah. like that first paragraph, it's just like, this is a children's story. This is yeah. like, a, this is a story that is like, teaching you lessons about what is right and wrong. That's like how it's written. It's like yeah. stably. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And so even as a sci-fi story, it actually really fails. And so nowhere in it does it say that it specifically this is communism, but that's definitely the way I took it in eighth grade. And I remember really having this experience of being like, God, communism so bad. And looking back at this um, now and to see just like, like this idea that's being put here, like you said, that equality means nobody gets to be special or talented, is one of the greatest like sleight of hands about what equality, like social equality means. Like take your boot off of this certain subset of the society's neck, right, is not suddenly taking away everyone's athleticism and their ability to sing and, and their beauty and all of that. Like, that's in here, too. Everybody has to wear a mask, and if they have a beautiful voice, they have to disguise it. Like, it's horrifying, and it's also dumb. So anyway, that's, that's Kurt Vonnegut, and that's this very this anti-communism story. That's really, I know that that's the way that it was, it came across to me. I'm just like, first of all, the story, I mean, I'm just like skimming through it because he sent it to me, but it's like incredibly ableist. And mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, just calling all this stuff like handicaps as if it's like mm -hmm. the worst thing that can happen to you. It's like, no, it's not. We have amazing technology and like, whatever. Uh, it's just like really fucking ableist. And like, right. also he's... In, the, in, like, the third paragraph, he's talking about Harrison's parents, and he's like, Hazel, the woman, totally normal brain, but George, who was very, very, very super-duper smart, had to have this brain chip. And it's like, Kurt Vonnegut honestly thinks that, like, white men are just better, smarter, more talented, inherently, naturally, than everybody else. We, I see it, Kurt. I see what saying we see you Kurt well and so <laughs> absolutely 100% so Harrison Bergeron's written in 1961 Vonnegut being brought on to the Iowa Writers Program as a faculty member in 1965 he was primarily known as a pulp writer so him coming on was kind of odd except that he had Already, he already had this anti-communist stance, which comes through Harrison Bergeron and probably in some, also his pulp work at the time. Uh, 
So I think that that's actually what got him on at Iowa is what is just the early 60s. And, you know, Vonnegut's hip. These people are hip. Paul Engel is hip. Oh, which, by the way, Paul Engel took money. Who's heading up the uh, Iowa department? He took money from the Fairfield Foundation, which is a – I'm just going to read this couple of sentences about the Fairfield Foundation from Wikipedia. It says the Fairfield Foundation – a now-defunct CIA front acted as a philanthropic foundation. The CIA used it as a vehicle for their covert fundings of groups and persons that were believed to be effective weapons in a culture war against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So straight up, the Fairfield Foundation was a front organization that gave money to people like Paul Engel to use in a culture war against against communism. So, wow! So Paul Engel has been called a self-appointed cold warrior. <laughs> That's Aha! Wait, cold say that again. Warrior. A self-appointed what? Cold warrior. It's, it's anti-communist. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is really the root of where this propaganda is coming from. And Paul Engel is at the helm of Iowa from 41 to 65, and he's using, you know, and this is coming from um, Eric Bennett, talks a lot about this in his book, Workshops of Empire, which I just want to say Eric Bennett is an Iowa graduate, and his book, Workshops of Empire, that critiques the funding that these workshops get is also published by University of Iowa. So just be careful in reading the programs. Is this is inside information, so it's also propaganda about propaganda. But anyway, uh, yeah. so Eric Bennett calls him you know, a self-appointed cold warrior and talks about how this funding for these programs is coming from the CIA. It's covertly you know, kind of called other things. The Rockefeller Foundation's in there. They're all supporting this, and, and that's what they're doing. They're trying to create literature in quotes, you know, this, this idea of what is literature, and it's, it's going to be this very conservative, um, anti-communist, pro-American voice of literature that's going to be so normalized that we just think of that as that's what we want to read and that's what we want to spend our money on. And there's mm-hmm. going to be a real turn away from a lot of the experimentation that you see coming out of like World War One in Europe. Like if you compare surrealism and Dadaism as movement, artistic movements, to what happens in World War Two in America, it is a sharp difference, right? Mm-hmm. Their long-term goal really is interesting just because of the way it continues. Like you just said, is it really, if people have been aware of this for so many decades, why are MFA programs still thriving? Why are they still, you know, full of people taking out loans to get these degrees, especially when we acknowledge now, like, there's no job on the other end of this degree, Right. So, right. so what is the impetus that's keeping people in this propaganda land of feeling like I need this MFA? Um, and that's just really the strength of the propaganda that they built, the empire that they built. Not just the ideology; it's the aesthetic. And so, and so Iowa really said, you know, we've cornered the market on what this aesthetic for writing is. Like we can, uh, we can objectively weigh the value of a piece of writing irrelevant of who the writer is, what the end goal is, what the ideology is in it. I mean, that's been, I think, enormously effective. Um, As a young writer, like, that was just very, like, 
that was, you know, it was swagger just to think that way. And it is right? like almost a form of like, of uh, censorship. I mean, it is a form of censorship when you're, you know, deciding that material has to fit what you deem as like, you know, quote unquote good, like you're already going to be censoring out like a lot of people who are not fitting into those uh, parameters that you just like made up out of nowhere, you know, or not out of nowhere to like push that your own ideals that you're trying to put into the world. The Office of War Information is really the crux of psychological warfare. That was their speciality, right? So they they understood that freedom of speech is not an issue. We can let Americans say whatever they want and feel like they have freedom of speech. That is not an issue. When we think about power, what we have to control is freedom of access and opportunity, not speech. Mm. And they understood that. They understood psychological warfare. They understood that propaganda is not just what you give to people, but that there are gradations of it, you know, that there's white propaganda where it's very clear who's, who's leading the, the call out, and there's black propaganda where it's obviously obfuscating, you know, who is behind this, and gray propaganda. I mean, they, they studied this. Mm-hmm. This is an entire school mm-hmm. of thought. <laughs> yes. Well, we just did our last episode. We talked about black and gray propaganda. I mean, it's definitely straight out of it's straight out of Hoover's FBI. I mean, all of these things are very much uh, connected. Oh, oh, yeah. So interesting. That's so interesting. New Yorker today. The New Yorker is still one of the most coveted positions that poets want to be published in. And the New Yorker is right in line with all of this. You know, I mean, why? Why do you want to be published in New Yorker? You know, what is, right. what is it going to get you? How, how, what kind of poetry are they actually, why is the New Yorker some kind of gatekeeper for good poetry? That in of itself is a ridiculous entity, but, but again, this it is, is. Part of like, you, you know, the New Yorker, these were these big publishing venues that if you did get published in them, you got this notoriety for poetry where there's no notoriety. Mm-hmm. It's like you're, you're being held out this tiny, you know, pie. And then you all have to fight over these tiny slices of the pie because that's what they're telling you mm-hmm. is the whole game. You know, and that's the psychological mm-hmm. warfare that I think is still entrenched in young poets' minds who are coming up through these MFA programs. They are going through these programs and being told this disinformation still. They're being trained to still fight over a small pie, get in the New Yorker, get in the Paris Review, um, try to get your book published with a major publishing house, and they're not so much being told you know, the, the larger story and the larger picture, unless you're going to more outline, um, outlier, kind of outrider tradition MFA programs. And I would say Naropa is one of them, which is mm-hmm. why I went there. You know, there. There are programs that are really right. on the outskirts that are trying to beat back some of this. But then I think you have to acknowledge, I mean, I knew coming out of Naropa that I would probably never be published by a big publishing. It's like a give and take. Right. You have to say, well, if I want to make art this way and I don't want my art to be controlled by the propaganda, then I'm going to have to take this loss, you know, and the fact that I'm not yep. going to get a big publishing contract probably, I'm not going to get published in these, you know, these big places, and I'm not going to get that kind of notoriety. That, and I'm also saying there's part of me, and then I also loved my MFA program, so here's the crux, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I had a great experience as well. Do I think that people need to drop, you know, several thousands, uh, thousands of dollars in order to get this kind of training, you know? And you know me, I'm a, right. a community person, I'm a street poet, like, I just really think 
that the evil of these programs is in the greed and in the mm-hmm. um, access of privilege that people have to be a part of them. I don't think anything is happening in these programs that can't happen at a level where everyone has access and it could be on the street and that you don't need some kind of certificate that's going to tell you that now you understand writing in a way you didn't, in a way you didn't before. Um, right. I'm also very critical of the workshop model that comes out of mm. these templates of programs. I, I don't know who uh, was able to um, pull the wool over everyone's eyes and say, you know what will be a good idea? We're going to put 15 students in a room and you read your piece to 14 other people who have no clue what they're doing and they're going to tell you how to make that writing better. It's a ridiculous right. concept. The entire uh, idea of workshops is a ridiculous concept. And, and I've heard so many horror stories from people who've had to experience yeah. it that I'm like, it is a type of psychological warfare, right? It is actually psychological warfare to be forced to sit in a room Mm. with a handful of other people who have also no idea what they're doing. They're just as amateur and just as green as you are, and yet they're going to sit there while you quietly take their Mm -hmm. critiques that are probably mostly not useful at all. Um, Oh, my God. And in those moments, you see those individual people that, like, love that little bit of power. They're like, oh, I got a little bit of power. I'm going to tear your poem to fucking shreds. I mean, I went to school with a lot of kids like that, and I hated them. I mean, yeah, and it gets even worse when you yeah. have, like, abuse of power, when you have, you know, someone's revealing a very vulnerable story. Mm-hmm. And I've heard so many horror stories of, you know, people being really – uh, insensitive on leveling on almost kind of abusive response because they think, oh, well, it's writing, so you should just take it. Don't take it personally. Uh, you yes! Know, oh, my it's, God, it's yes. Not. Like, let's just not do this model anymore. Like, if we are not mm-hmm. trained to handle sensitivity and to train to ethically understand how to handle poetry, then maybe you shouldn't be critiquing other people's work. It's a bad idea. Oh God! Yeah, that's amazing. I'm into that. <laughs> Yeah, I meet, you know, I remember a friend of mine saying, a couple of friends really saying, you know, it's just every time, because I went, my school is a slightly different model than that, but every time, uh, I, other people have said to me, every time I bring up something that's queer in a story, um, the rest of the group will tell me the story's too political. And oh I thought, well, that, right? I saw how useless, how utterly useless to sit in that room, like every, you know, like pay all of that money. And which was brought up earlier, it's just like, it's crazy how much you see Vonnegut like everywhere. And he is like, mm-hmm. everybody just thinks of him as like the most favorite, bestest guy ever. And then I was like, I started reading, um, I haven't read a lot of Vonnegut, but I started reading Sirens of Titan like maybe a couple of years ago. And I was like, wow, this guy is extremely racist. Like he is saying oh, yeah. very racist things. And nobody talks about stuff like that. And he's just like, I mean, people do. I don't want to, it's not like I'm the first person to ever say that. But up until that point in my life, like I had not encountered a lot of people that were like pushing back against Vonnegut. And he's just this person that's like, you know, every Barnes and Noble has every single fucking Vonnegut book. Like every bookstore has this guy's books and everybody knows that guy's name. And it's like, why though? Like why him? Is he really that much better than all of the other poets and writers that have come out of these programs? Like, no, that's a no from me. 
to the program, you get the publishing contracts, you get the awards. I mean, you'll see these same names over and over again. I mean, is, you know, Louise Gluck a better poet, or Phil Levine a better poet than, or Jory Graham? Are they better poets than the thousands of other poets in the country? No. I mean, mm-hmm. their names are going to come up over and over again because they're part of the machine of, you know, this very narrow idea of once we've decided, like, you're the acceptable golden girl or boy or non-binary person of poetry, then you're the one we're going to latch on to. And that's where canons come from. You know, people think of the canon as like Milton and, you know, very old works. And it's like, no, it's really even, you know, in this last century, there's canon poets and canon literature that's still being just routinely taught and given to people in all kinds of programs. So we, again, I think the propaganda strength is what's really fascinating. Like how strong is this propaganda? Well, it's so strong that here we are in 2020 completely aware of how the machine works and yet we can't get out of it. Like we can't get out of the machine. We're still in it. (laughs) Yeah, I do think, I mean, I know I have access to more diverse writing now, just even through like following people on Instagram and like people post a lot of writing on Instagram, you know, like text posts and stuff. And I see a lot that I never had access to, but it still is like such a, uh, uphill battle because it's so integrated into all of our education, which is, you mm. know, cause like everything, like when you were just saying like the canon, Megan, it's like, who chooses that? And like, why are these certain books, like the ones that were expected to, to read? And why are those the ones that are considered the best? Like they're really not that challenging. They're all written by white guys. They are like, they all have like common political themes. So it's like, okay, that's not actually that hard to figure out as to why. Um, and it's, it's weird too. I saw on Twitter this week, like that, you know, it was just one of those inflammatory posts that was like, somebody posted a picture, like this is my son's elementary school. And it was a picture of like a black lives matter sign that also said like, we believe in science and kindness and, there was all these like right wing nut jobs in the replies being like, look, they're putting propaganda in the schools. And I was just like, yo, what, like, what, what school did you go to? Did your school not have propaganda? Like everything Mm. that we're taught at school is intense propaganda. And yeah, that's just a choice. Like thinking back into what I read, like in high school, English is it's all like these, these white men, you know, that have the same political ideals and that people have more access nowadays. Well, even like somebody like Vonnegut, who like at least over two, at least over two generations of people was considered, you know, kind of this, you know, wild kind of hippie, punky kind of guy, you know, like outsider kind of guy, but, but he's not, I mean, he's always really been pretty, staunchly um, politically con- and socially conservative. So I think that I like anti-leftist even, and he definitely came through the Iowa workshop. Um, he's definitely part of this, you know, propaganda vein that Megan's been talking about. And here he is seen as sort of like, at least when I was young, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, if you were kind of wild and funky and anti-establishment, those are the, that's the word I'm looking for. Like he was kind of that anti, one of those looked upon in that way. It just doesn't happen to be true. I think at least, yeah. for at least two generations of people, 
anti-establishment has been satisfied by people who make fun of um, either capitalism or kind of like the man, you can't win against the man, you know, and that just that that has sufficed for being anti-establishment when the truth of it is these folks are all, they're all perfectly establishment writers and thinkers and entertainers. I mean, yeah. if you think about propaganda, think about propaganda as an art form, not just the idea that propaganda is used within the arts. Think about propaganda as an art form in itself. And really the amazing aspect is that when we think about these writers, when we think about poetry, they really completely pull the, the, you know, the hood over our eyes and that most of us don't read literature, we don't read poetry, we still go to these things for the entertainment aspect of it. We watch movies for the entertainment aspect of it. And that's the art of propaganda is that you don't mm-hmm. see it. You're getting it yeah. and you don't see it. And stuff is, is tucked in because I think about Vonnegut and I'm just like, I feel like in Slaughterhouse-Five, which it's like he seems weirdly anti-war, but he's like not. Like there's stories about like soldiers in it, but I just don't feel like it really has like an anti-war sentiment. sentiment. And then that makes me think of so many books like that. Like, so many books I read in high school, like, even, like, that book, The Things They Carried, which I don't know if either of y'all know that book, mm-hmm. or if... Tim O'Brien, if, yeah. Yeah, and it's, like, those things that I feel like as you read them, you're like, oh, man, yeah, war sucks, but you don't walk away from them thinking, we shouldn't do that. It, it, it's, yeah. it's weird because it's like they almost let it in a little bit like yeah we'll show you this but this thing that might seem anti-war because it shows the horrors of war but it's actually really not anti-war doesn't show any of the nuances as to like what the u.s imperialist system is and just kind of leaves you yeah without without an anti-war feeling it's that I think Ingle would think, Ingle, you know, who ran the Iowa program for decades, would say, you know, he was the good guy, right? He was the anti-communist. He was, the, you know, yep. a pro-American. And it's this idea of who's the good guy? Well, I'm the good guy. We're the good guys. We're, we're making this literature, this art that's about the good guys. And there's just this sense of, like, you know, if you create this dualistic side, there's bad and good, then it becomes blurry and like, what, what does that mean that you're the good guys? Like you're still pro-war are you, and, and you're the good guys? Mm-hmm. How does all that work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I feel like so much stuff we read was just like, war is hard, but it's necessary. And it's really yeah. sad, but we got to do it because all these other countries that suck, we're the only good country. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The police, we're the police of the entire, you know, the world. The U.S. is the police of the world, and we're saying, you know, just like we're seeing our streets now, like, oh, no, you need us. Like, you, we have to kill you. Yeah. It's not our fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Megan, for coming to talk to us today. Is, um, is there any big thought you'd like to, or small thought you'd like to um, make sure that, we understand today? Um, well, I brought up the dualistic side of these kind of ideas, and I just I put on something on Twitter yesterday saying that we were going to talk about this, and someone mentioned 
um, you know, because of these programs, we did have a, a large transnational conversation that began to happen because of MFA programs and interest in translation mm. and, in, and some things. And, and I don't want to discount that. I don't want to say MFA bad. Um, when you create something that is problematic, I mean, the dualistic nature of it is that you also create something that can be very positive. And, and that goes without saying, I think. Like, so there are problems with the template. There are problems with the conservative idea of gatekeeping literature. But at the same time, these other programs developed that really brought in a lot of more conversation and a lot of um, translation and just kind of opening up the whole thing. So it's hard to just throw out all of it and say it's this or that. I think that we just need to be more discerning about, you know, just – in the same way that we need to be discerning about things like our police and our pol- political governments, where are their roots? Where are the foundations for the things that we continue mm-hmm. to put our money and energy in? It's not that an MFA program in itself is evil or bad or has a propaganda agenda, but you need to understand where these things come from, and you need to understand if you're going to be a part of it, the system that you're agreeing to be in, and that you probably can't reform within a system that is problematic. You can't you know, reform the police any more than you can reform maybe the the propaganda machine. Like, it is problematic in itself. Oh, I got chills all over me when you said that. It has to be true. You know, you both know that that means it's true. (laughs) I get the chills. (laughs) Uh, I agree with all of that, Megan. Um, Thank you so much for talking to us today. Yeah, Yeah, thank you so much, Megan. You're so cool. It's nice to uh, have your perspective on all these things. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to episode three of Secret Antenna with special guest Megan Burns. You can find her on Twitter at Blood Jet Poetry. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Secret Antenna. Contact us at secretantenna at protonmail.com. And stay tuned for our live broadcast this Friday, October 9th at twitch.com slash secret antenna.